3CR acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nations. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. This morning's a kind of special morning, isn't it? Yeah, a bit of a reunion, a breakfast reunion. It's nice to have a few people in the house. It is, yeah, especially after, I mean, for me, it, you know, it's been so long because of lockdown and all, I've been mostly producing at home and sending things in. So it's really exciting to be here. I was so excited. I could yeah. hardly sleep last night. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, did you miss that live in the studio experience, Judith, over the Well, at 3CR, yeah, I have done yeah. it. Yeah, I have been in studios in other stations. Yep. Triple R doing some broadcasting there. But uh, I don't know, the 3CR studio, there's something special here. Yeah. Yeah, yep. it's great. Just great. <laughs> and mostly I've been sending things in for communication mixed down. So, you know, doing the interviews from home and uh, using Zoom. And, of course, you do get to see the people when you use Zoom, so that's kind of good. But, um, yeah, it's yeah. there's something totally different being on the phone here. You know? Yes, yeah. definitely, and something yeah. about that. I'm and having a face, you know, live face, yes, <laughs> live <absolutely>. body yeah. <laughs> to look at. It gives you that extra energy kick, that's for it sure. It sure and, does. Um, that yeah. nice feeling you get on a Wednesday morning at 8.30 when you're all wrapped up and heading out. And, yeah, I really missed that over last year, I think. So, yeah, yeah it's been good. And there's me and Claudia. Hey, we, <laughs> were we have officially arrived. Excellent. <laughs> we just wanted to leave you waiting a little bit, um, you know. Yeah. Well, we, you know, well. we caught up. Judith and I have caught up. Now, yeah, we've got Claudia and Alice here. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. And it's so good to be with everybody in the studio. Yeah, yeah, as we were just saying, yeah, it's really special. It's just something really wonderful about that. And Judith, um, how have how have you been? It's been so long. <laughs> well, I've I've been busy uh, last year doing um, communication mixdown, producing there, done some broadcasting on Three Triple R, and now I'm getting ready for a big road trip and do some bird watching. Ooh, a road. Trip. Yes, because there's been all this rain, you know, and floods even in, um, you know, the west of New South Wales. And there's been, I didn't even, <laughs> all the things you find out, right, when you start looking. But I realized there's all these inland wetlands, like I associate wetlands with, you know, closer to the sea. Mm. But there's one near Ranald in New South Wales, which is, you know, far west and um, often adjacent some of the rivers, like the Murrumbidgee River. Anyway, the rain brings the birds. Oh, wow. And frogs, but I'll be mostly looking for birds. <laughs> so I'm getting ready for that. Yeah. Oh, how Aww. exciting. That's so exciting. And then we have, we also do have Claudia here. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Yay. Yay. It's musical chairs and musical really studios is. this morning. So um, we've got multiple panel operators. 
for our COVID safe practice. And yeah, I think it's the first time we've had four in the studio. So yeah, doing it a bit differently this morning. So a little bit of suspense there. I know our listeners were dying for me to come on. (laughs) And we, yeah, and so were we. (laughs) And finally, we're all here. Yes. And we were saying before, so it is a bit of a reunion. Um, and what's the reason for the reunion, Alice? You've got a bit of news to share, don't I, you? I do. So this is going to be probably my penultimate, I like that word, oh. um, <laughs> show live in the studio, um, which is really sad. And I'm smiling now because I'm happy that we're all together. But it's so sad that, um, yeah, I'm heading back to the UK. My visa has come to an end. And um, I found out recently that British people outstay their visas longer than pretty much anybody else in this in this yes, country. It's true. Which it's is true. yeah, <laughs> I should have known that before. But it, yeah, I'm off, which is yeah, really sad. And so we've got a little reunion here, just so that we've got a couple more live shows all together. I started my three CR adventures with Judith um, on the Monday Breakfast Show. So it's so great to have you here with us, Judith. It was an amazing year, Alice. <laughs> it really was. I was yeah. brand new to radio and, um, yeah, Judith really helped me figure out the ropes and, yeah, taught me a lot. So thank you for that. And you taught me too, of course, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I didn't know much about podcasting and how to put the podcast up and you came in with all that knowledge and taught me. So that's a great thing about community radio, isn't it? There's always this reciprocity and learning from each other and supporting each other. Yeah, I was going to say that that's one of the lovely things about 3CR is the way people pass on their knowledge and share so willingly. It's not a competitive environment where people want to kind of keep their special <laughs> goods to themselves <laughs> and everyone's very willing to, to teach the next person who comes on and then that person acquires some skills and passes them on to the next person and, yeah, the wheels keep rolling. They yeah. do, yeah. Yeah, and I've really, I've really felt that in the la- over the last three years at 3CR and it's just been such an amazing community. Lots of memories. So many memories. And um, <clears throat> pardon me. And then obviously Ella and Claudia. We've been now broadcasting on Wednesday breakfast for probably two years. Or well, we were Monday, so. and then oh, we yeah. we all moved to Wednesday, second half of last year. But yeah, we've been a team for about two years now. Mm. Two years. Yeah, yeah. it's gone quick. <laughs> it, it has completely flown by. Yeah, you're um, going to be um, very missed on Wednesday mornings, Alice. Oh, thank you. Extremely. No. You'll have to tune in from the UK. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and I'd still love to to send in send through some stories if I if I have them on absolutely. on my uh, on my way home. Really, there's a lot going on in the UK, and so yeah, I'd, yeah, I'll definitely our, um, keep you updated. I'll be your correspondent. Exactly, UK correspondent. UK. I like that. <laughs> and I think we'll have to revisit some of our favourite Alice moments next week. Oh my I've gosh. Rumours that your uh, first interview ever was with a pagan witch, is that right? Absolutely. So I'm going to see if I can track that one down. I I remember when she told me this is what she wanted to do for Easter, (laughs) our Easter broadcast. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. I thought, well, Alice is going to add a (laughs) lot. (laughs) And not only that, things that I wouldn't – and this is the other benefit of collaborating, right? That people bring things that you wouldn't think of. Mm. And that's always really special and just expands out what we can do. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we might I might have to hunt around in the 
Alice Archives for some for some of my favourite moments. I am playing one today that has um, actually been a favourite moment in 2022 so far. So I know we haven't really been here for very long, but um, yeah, should we should we tell our listeners what we've got coming up? Yeah, what have we got lined up? Well, I can I can start. So we will be listening to an interview that I did with Sherry Smith, a Roma woman and a fierce activist in the UK for the Roma Gypsy and Traveller community. So I spoke to Sherry about the recent legislation within the UK that criminalises their culture and further oppresses all the nomadic folk in Britain, um, really to the fringes even even more. So, yeah, we'll take a listen to that interview and reflect on, yeah, maybe some communities that we're not so familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed that one. And as you said, it's not something we hear a lot about here in Australia. So Yeah, and at 8.15... Um, Myself and Ella will be having a chat to Matthew Roberts, policy advisor at Sex Work Glory Form Victoria. Yeah, that's right. So all three of us went along with a group of others last Thursday to Parliament uh, for the debate on the sex work decriminalisation bill. Um, so yeah, we're going to unpack it with Matthew, ask some highlights, lowlights of the day. That is so exciting. I'm so excited about this. Yes, yes. That so for so those important. of you who haven't heard, um, it mm. is yeah now decriminalised or set to be very soon. So. Mm. Yeah. And Matthew Roberts played an instrumental role in getting that bill to Parliament on Thursday. Um, he, yeah, he's he and Sex Work Law Reform Victoria have worked tirelessly for years in lobbying and um, sort of creating strategies to get themselves in front of as many politicians as they possibly could to really make sure that this bill wasn't ignored. And um, and they paid off years of hard work. I mean, bearing in mind, it, it has been in the making for 45 years. Yes. But it was really, yeah, ramped up and Sex Work Law Reform Victoria, um, mm. as its name suggests, did did the job, which is fantastic. Yeah, and Fiona Patton was uh, instrumental. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Fiona so Patton um, led the way. Mm. Yeah. No, it was a wonderful day on Thursday, and yeah, it'd be looking well. Looking forward to speaking to Matthew eight fifteen. Yeah. yeah, great to share that with listeners, mm-hmm. given you're all there and uh, part of it. Yeah, and I'm going to be taking another look at modern slavery. We covered this a couple of times last year on three CR. And uh, this morning we're going to be talking uh, with Freya Dinshaw. She's a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre and they've been involved with a project that's been looking at the four of the industries that uh, are most high risk for modern slavery in their supply chains. And, yeah, she's going to come and tell us about those. And we're also going to have a listen back to an interview I did with NAFAM last year um, where NAFAM, uh, who's a Monash researcher, explains a little bit about the supply chain and how modern slavery um, can exist in different uh, tiers of the supply chain. So that's kind of a little bit of background uh, before we talk to Freya. Excellent. All right. It should be a good morning. It's um, going to be busy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, um, before we start, I reckon we should get started with some music. Judith, you brought in some CDs this morning. Oh, I, I did have to um, <laughs> have a refresher to make sure I still knew how to connect to the CD so, so player, but I'm all set see, now. So. We'll see what happens. <laughs> so it's Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with a song written by um, Auntie Ruby Hunter. And the first one she wrote in her own language, Naren Jerry from South Australia, and it's called Yarian Mitichi. 
Oh, wow, what a nice way to start the morning. Donovan and the Putbacks with Auntie Ruby Hunter's song, Yarian Mitiji. Over to you, Claudia. Oh, we might come back in just a moment. 
Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Okay, now we're going to have our segment on modern slavery. We're going to be hearing from two speakers. First up, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Na Pham from the Monash Centre of Financial Studies. And we spoke to her last year about the Australian laws requiring large organisations to report risks of modern slavery in their operations and their supply chain and her findings as to the performance of Australia's top 100 public companies in disclosing these risks. We're then going to be speaking live with Freya Dinshaw. Freya is a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, and she's been doing work with a team reviewing the disclosure performance of companies in four sectors that have known risks of modern slavery. And they're companies that are involved in the production and sale of garments from China, rubber gloves from Malaysia, seafood from Thailand and fresh produce from Australia. But before we get into those interviews, for listeners who are hearing about modern slavery for the first time, a brief recap of some of the key facts just to help you through um, and make sense of what we're going to be hearing. So there are an estimated 40 million victims of slavery in the world today and about 70% of those are women. Two-thirds of these people live in Asia and the Pacific and we have approximately 1,500 in Australia and that's just the known figures. Australian law defines slavery as, as circumstances where coercion, threats or deception are used to exploit victims and undermine or deprive them of their freedom. It's the nasty point on the workplace continuum and includes human trafficking, forced marriage, forced labour, debt bondage, servitude, deceptive recruiting for labour or services and slavery practices involving children. Now, Australian consumers can be unknowingly supporting modern slavery through our purchases of everyday goods and services that are either produced in Australia using products from here or overseas through the supply chain. Now, in 2018, the Australian Modern Slavery Act came into operation and that requires organisations with revenue of more than $100 million to report on the risks of modern slavery in their operations. 
So we're now going to take a listen back to my conversation with Monash University researcher Dr Na Pham, who was part of a team reviewing and ranking Australia's largest public companies on their compliance with the modern slavery disclosure, disclosure regulations. And the first question I asked her was, what exactly are the reporting obligations of companies when it comes to modern slavery risks? Australian companies is not just companies. In fact, they are all um, type of organisations, um, including non-profit organisations and governmental organisations as well. Um, if they have uh, the consolidated revenue of more than 100 million Australian dollars, um, they would have to report on the modern slavery risk within their operations and their supply chain. So in the last reporting rounds, there uh, were more than 3,000 um, entities or reporting entities that have submitted their statements. And can you tell us what constitutes risk and how companies measure risk? Yes, so risk, um, and especially here when we are talking about modern slavery risk, we talk about the um, types of exploitation that you have mentioned. So it is a requirement for Australian companies or organisations to look into their operations and supply chains and to see whether they can identify um, you know, any potential exploitations of modern slavery. So they would have to look into their operations to see whether they have any um, potential sources of, uh, let's say, forced labour or um, child labour. And they also have to conduct risk assessment on their suppliers um, and not just within uh, the, their direct suppliers set, but they also have to look into their supply chain. And I do think that the concept of supply chain uh, may need a bit of uh, explanation. So when we talk about supply chain of an organization, we are talking about you know, anything that they need to buy to run or to operate, and anything they need to buy um, for resale. So, and when they, we talk about their suppliers, they are their direct suppliers, but we, they also need to look further beyond what we call the first tier suppliers. And it, they have to look into um, the suppliers of the suppliers as well. So they really look, need to look further in their supply chain to see if there is any way that they can be related to any potential sources of exploitations. So that means that companies selling a, a product in Australia has to go right back through the supply chain to the producers of the minerals or the materials that are used to make a product? Well, um, so as a part of the requirement, they would actually have to work closely with their direct suppliers first, that's the first tier. And then they really have to make sure that their suppliers have system in place to work with the suppliers uh, further up the chain. So it's not the direct responsibility of the Australian companies to go and audit all the suppliers, you know, way further up the chain, but they have to make sure that uh, the suppliers that they are working with have that kind of system to check. So in terms of the actual uh, obligation on the Australian company, it's 
major obligation is related to its direct supplier. Yep. But in terms of tracking back further than that, it is required to have systems but not actually implemented or how yeah. is it different to what they do with then the Let me one? clarify that a bit. So within the Act, the Act asks the companies to look into the risk or the potential risk that they may cause. So the risk that they may cause could include that, you know, maybe they would have some certain pressure on their workers in the operation or some certain type of exploitation. So that would be the, the risk that the companies may cause. And the Act also asks the companies to understand the risk that they may contribute to. So typical example would be, you know, if you set a very unrealistically low price um, for your suppliers, so that put the pressure on the suppliers to, you know, to uh, exploit labours, for example, or go and find, you know, not credible source of supplies. Um, for their own supplies. So that's another example of the risk that you, they need to look into. So that the risk that they contribute to or they might contribute to. And then the, the Act also asks the companies to report on the risk that they may be related to. So the risk that they might be related to would be more likely in um, further up in the supply chain. Okay. And can you give us some examples of companies that um, might have discovered these risks in their supply chain? Yes. So when we, um, in our research project at Monash, what we did was to look at the statements um, of the 100 largest companies that are listed on our stock market. And looking at their statements, we, we understand in some cases, companies have identified potential sources of risk. Um, so uh, one example could be, uh, for example, AGL. Um, they identify that in the supply chain of the solar panels, um, there might be risk with forced labour. And uh, Umworth, for example, also had uh, identified potential um, risk related to forced labour, debt bondage, deceptive recruitment uh, or child labour. So those are the issues that companies have acknowledged that they might have in their supply chain. Okay. Can we just um, unpack that a little bit? Uh, can you tell us about the example with the solar panels and what sort of risks uh, specifically and where they are coming from? Yeah, so the, um, the issue of modern slavery risk um, with the solar panels um, uh, comes from you know where they are made and also what goes into the panel. So the key material that goes into the panels are the polysilicon. So that material is uh, made um, uh, is mainly sourced from China, and about seventy five percent of that is sourced from China, and quite a large component of that is actually sourced from the Xinjiang region in China, um, which is a very controversial area for forced labor because um, the, re the region has been accused of you know, having forced labor. You know, it's a state-sponsored uh, forced labor. So this is the, it, the Uyghur community. 
Yes. So that example is to show that what we have uh, in the final product, um, the potential risk can come from what goes into it. You know, maybe it's just a metal, it may be just one material that goes into it, or it could be where the factory are, lo are located and what is the, um, or where the, the panels are made. So once uh, a company like AGL has identified that type of risk, what are they required to do about it and what are they doing about it? Uh, well, it's very, um, so the companies would be in a very, uh, would have to face with a very clear challenge of, you know, how to solve that. It is not an easy decision just to move away from the suppliers because um, there are very limited alternatives. So the issue is perhaps for the Australian companies to work with the suppliers and through the suppliers leverage their influence and trying to you know, make sure that these issues or this risk are not there and then try to encourage the suppliers to source the material or, you know, or source the products and services from alternative sources. But it will not be some immediate result. It takes a lot of time to actually locate new potential suppliers. And also, especially if we, if we look into deep into the supply chain where um, it's not just you know, one factory that manufactures something is a whole chain uh, from raw materials into, you know, parts and into assembly of the panels. Are there any indications in the statements um, or the requirements under the Act uh, as to how hard a company has to try to rectify those sorts of um, issues in terms of looking for an alternative supplier? Yes, so it doesn't, um, so I don't recall that information from the statement of AGL, for example, but I did see another example with Downer, um, which is another company also highlighted that they might have issues or they may have um, potential risk of forced labor in their supply chain due to one partner that they have been working with. And so in this situation, the company, um, have to go and do their own audit. And when the company did their own audit, they said they didn't find, or they, after the investigation, they said they didn't find the evidence to support the claim that the partner is associated with forced labor. So that is another, um, so that could be some action for the companies to take because they can conduct investigations, they can conduct audits. But I have to say that it's also not easy, um, especially with COVID, um, because most of the time in order to conduct audits, the companies would have to have site visits or site audit. Um, and with COVID, with border closure, that would be very hard. So the requirement of the act is for the company to assess their risk and also to find a way to address the risk. And it's up on the company to try different avenues or different actions. So the, the act doesn't really uh, prescribe, um, you know, what kind of actions the company have to, to take to, to remedy the situation. 
So that was Na Pham from the Monash Centre for Financial Studies talking through the responsibilities of Australian corporations and organisations under the Modern Slavery Act in terms of disclosing and mitigating against the risk of modern slavery practices. We now go to chat live with Freya Dinshaw, Senior Human Rights Law Centre lawyer. And Freya is the co-author of a recent report called Paper Promises, evaluating the early impact of Australia's Modern Slavery Act, which was part of a two-year research project carried out by academics, human rights organisations and church groups, aiming to improve responses to modern slavery and access to remedies. So rather than compiling data on the largest 100 public companies, as in the Monash study, the team Freya worked with took an industry-focused approach and looked at companies that are operating in areas that we already know have a high risk of slavery. So here to share the findings of that group is Freya Dinshaw. Welcome, Freya. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Freya, can you tell us about your report and why it was commissioned? So um, our report, the Promises, looks at statements of up to companies that have been operating in that have no risks of modern slavery. And so specifically, we're talking about clothing from China, uh, medical rubber gloves from Malaysia, seafood from Thailand and fresh produce from here in Australia. And what we wanted to look at and, and why, I guess, we, we chose to um, do a sector-focused review rather than a sort of broader review of company performance under the modern slavery laws was because we wanted to sort of go behind um, just what companies needed to do to comply with the laws to see are companies really engaging with their modern slavery risks and are they identifying the right risks in their supply chains, but also are they taking meaningful actions to address those risks. Um, and what our research found was that um, 77% of the companies we reviewed actually didn't meet um, the sort of technical uh, legal reporting requirements of the Act. But beyond that, over half of the companies were failing to disclose um, these obvious modern slavery risks in their high-risk supply chains. Um, and just 27% appeared to be taking some form of effective action to address those risks. And um, when the Modern Slavery Act was initially um, enacted, it was meant to drive like, this race to the top by companies uh, to, to sort of address modern slavery and um, you know, better one another to, to um, really uh, be effective in, in addressing these kinds of risks. But what our research has found is that many of the companies have barely left the starting block. That's really um, quite alarming, really. Uh, yes, in some ways um, it, it, it could be of surprise, but um, there's a couple of things to note here. Firstly, the Act is, is relatively new. Um, it came in in 2018, so we've only looked at the first round of reporting under the Act. Um, which which just um, finished in the last year. But also, I think beyond that, many people would be surprised to learn that there are no real ramifications for failing to comply with our current non-slavery laws. There's no fines, there's no blacklist, there's no um, kind of heavier enforcement um, that you would expect given the sort of serious subject matter of what we're dealing with, non-slavery, some of the most egregious um, human rights violations that can be faced by people. Um, and I think at, at its heart, we need laws that ensure people aren't abused in the production of the food we eat or the clothes we wear. And so at a minimum, that really means there should be some sort of harder consequences for, for companies that aren't taking their um, reporting obligations seriously or, or aren't looking deep enough into their supply chains. 
Or alternatively, incentives and um, rewards for those companies who are taking this seriously. Because I think if you think about some of the issues that NAFAM explained to us last year, I'm not sure if uh, they were in the audio that we played, but um, she was talking about the difficulty that a company has if you go right back in the supply chain and the company may be then forced to make a very difficult decision if they're isn't an alternative supplier or sourcing an alternative supplier means that their costs of production will increase and so forth. So it feels like there needs to be some support for companies and, as you say, penalties as well, but a bit more than just reporting requirements because it's one thing to identify that you have a risk, but then what's going to make a company actually take the action that they need, particularly if it's a long way back in their supply chain and it's going to add to their their costs and make the product more expensive, especially in this COVID economic climate with retailer. You know, I don't think retailers want to have more expensive products in their showrooms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've kind of nailed it on the head. Um, what we have seen um, through our analysis of reporting is that um, the the monthly, our monthly laws should really be reoriented um, instead um, of focusing on reporting and uh, companies sort of having to say what they've done. It should really be focusing on what companies should be doing and providing incentives for companies to look deeper into their supply chains and actually to meaningfully engage with suppliers to lift um, working conditions and to kind of eliminate risk by capacity building and and looking at their own purchasing practices to see how those could be made more responsible, um, how um, workers can be more easily listened to and um, also working more closely with, with worker representatives to, to try and mitigate um, those risks and those systemic um, problems of forced labour that, that we're seeing in high-risk sectors. Um, so what we have um, called for in our report is further guidance for, for businesses that are operating in high-risk sectors, but also... Um, the introduction of, of a duty to prevent non-slavery risk, which would essentially require companies to undertake due diligence, which is appropriate and reasonable, to mitigate their really salient non-slavery risks in their supply chain. And so um, that would create an incentive for companies to, to really hone in on um, where the risks are in, in their operations and supply chains and to take action, um, not just to sort of be worrying about this, what, what could be described in some ways as a compliance exercise. Yes, and it was really alarming to read one of your findings was that only a quarter of the companies that you looked at actually did do a human rights due diligence when they were selecting their suppliers. Yeah, that's right. We looked at a number of um, indicators of of what, what we sort of termed effective action in the report and, and one of them was that just 25% talked about undertaking due diligence or human rights due diligence on their new suppliers in the selection process. Um, and uh, there was also a number of findings that that kind of alerted us to the fact that while um, while companies were, were sort of reporting the basics, like I think 84% said they do due diligence on their supply chain, which is promising, but when you kind of drill down into it, um, some of the detail that you'd like to see underneath that wasn't there. So, for example, there was only 12% of companies that could demonstrate that there was some um, level of freedom of association within their workforce or the supply chain workforce. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the big issues in, in um, 
modern slavery is the use of recruitment fees and deceptive recruitment practices where kind of unscrupulous labour hire companies or um, recruiters will bring migrant workers up in into, into a workforce um, and will charge them fees for their job and it ends up that most of their wages just end up going back to pay those recruiters for years on end. Um, and so only 13% of companies actually described what they were doing to ensure that workers weren't being charged for, for having a job, even though it's one of the kind of big-ticket um, items, if you like, in terms of trying to mitigate monoslavery risk, particularly in many of the sectors that we looked at. Um, so, yeah, there wasn't um, the kind of depth that we were looking for in terms of corporate responses to many of these issues. And I think the really um, pertinent thing to note as well is because your research and uh, review looked at companies that are in sectors with known high risks of modern slavery, one would have presumed that then those companies, you know, have a greater awareness and then would actually be going to greater lengths. So to find that, for example, three and four garment companies that source uh, materials from China fail to mention risks of Uyghur forced labour in their supply chains is really surprising and, you know, really problematic. Absolutely. I think that that was one of um, the most disturbing findings from our report, that despite the, you know, the huge amount of, of focus in the media and more broadly around, um, you know, very serious um, reports of, of oppression, um, systemic source labour, even amounting to crimes against humanity um, taking place in Xinjiang and across China in respect of um, Uyghurs and Turkic Muslims. Um, so few clothing companies that all source from China did um, grapple with that risk. And, uh, you know, there's part of the criteria for, for reporting under the Act is describing your, your risk. Um, so there's meant to be a section in every single statement that deals with those. And so the fact that so few even mentioned it um, was was really uh, disappointing. And beyond that, I think when we looked at what actions companies are taking to actually try and mitigate those risks, uh, it was only like one in 10, I believe, that had mapped their supply chain um, to, to their satisfaction to try and ensure that there wasn't any weaker forced labour in, um, in their Chinese garment supply chains and um, very few were really taking specific actions to try and either withdraw from the region or ensure, for, you know, to the extent possible that they weren't linked to, to those abuses that are um, occurring. So um, when you looked at the actual action that companies were taking, it was even less than those that um, were disclosing the risks in the first place. So the legislation's coming up for its three-year review this year. So it sounds like there's quite a bit of heavy lifting that needs to be done to address the efficacy of of what it's trying to achieve. That's right. So we've already touched a little bit on um, some of the ways in which we've, we've um, recommended that the, the Act be reformed to strengthen it and to, to kind of tackle that question of how do you incentivise companies to really seriously take action and um, take action that matters, that matters to workers and that matters to kind of, um, you know, mitigating these um, conditions of non-slavery beyond just severing ties with suppliers but actually trying to clean up um, global supply chains um, that are linked to Australian companies. So um, beyond the, the question of penalties and, you know, making, making a mandatory reporting regime truly mandatory, which at the moment it isn't, uh, we have called also for um, improved access to justice, 
for for affected workers because at the moment the Act doesn't really do anything specifically for for workers who who are in situations of severe labour exploitation or modern slavery. Um, The introduction of a a duty to prevent modern slavery risk um, and guidance for businesses operating in high-risk sectors. But we've also recommended that the government consider other complementary measures such as... um, creating an, an import ban on goods made with forced labour, which is the approach that's been taken um, in the states, as well as using um, public procurement as a way to to lift um, company performance in some of these areas and kind of create that carrot, if you like, um, in terms of rewarding companies that are really performing well um, in these areas. So a real multifaceted approach. Yes, that's right. It's a complex um, problem, so... We've recommended a sort of suite of measures that could um, assist in in starting to to tackle some of those problems. Absolutely. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Um, Before you go, I just wanted to um, let listeners know that um, Freya will be part of a discussion that's being held online today at one o'clock together with human rights expert Amy Sinclair and the president of the Australian Uyghur Women's Tanria Association, Ramila Chanashev, and that will be moderated by the Director of the Australian Human Rights Institute from the University of New South Wales. So that's on today at one o'clock. It's a Zoom event. So if listeners want to hear more about this, um, you can listen to the experts and head to the Australian Human Rights Institute website's events page, uh, www.humanrights.org unsw.edu.au forward slash events and you can register uh, and to access the report that the Human Rights Law Centre um, was part of then you can head to their website and they have a report section under their menu. Thank you very much Freya and back to Ella. Thanks very much for having me. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And a quick reminder to listeners before we move on to our next segment that this week is Subscriber Drive at 3CR. It's that time of the year where we ask everyone who's let their subscription go out of date or in need of renewed. Mine was two weeks. I renewed yesterday. I'm very guilty. (laughs) (laughs) So don't feel guilty. Yeah, (laughs) it's what the week's for. (laughs) No shaming going on here. Just pull up and subscribe. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, this week, if you do renew your subscription, so Judith, you could be in the running for this one. Uh, There's a hamper created by Living Coco up for grabs. So they're supporters of community-owned and run radio. And this hamper could be your Oh if you renew your subscription this week. Yay. <laughs> um, so to renew your subscription or sign up, you can call us on 94198377. That's 94198377. Or you can hop onto our website, which is 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. Wonderful. I'll be definitely doing that today. Excellent. I need to, uh, yeah, subscribe again.
<laughs> Good reminder. And now, um, in recent months, activists have taken to the streets across the UK to protest a bill that would criminalise Roma Gypsy travellers and nomadic people across the United Kingdom. Gypsy and traveller culture has a really long history in Britain and they have their own ethnic status. But the Conservative government recently passed legislation within a new police, crime, sentencing and courts bill which has criminalised their lifestyle. I spoke to Sherry Smith, a Roma Gypsy woman in Essex in the UK, um, who is one of the founders of Drive to Survive, an activist group and fierce campaigners um, and Sherry is of course a fierce campaigner within the community and so I spoke to her a couple of weeks ago but I'd like to just play that one again today um, as a bit of a reflection piece because I yeah I'd like to be reminded again and I think that it would do all of us good to be reminded again about some communities that we're less familiar with so here is Sherry and I first asked her if she could tell us a little bit about the Gypsy Roma and Travelling community in the UK. Gypsy Roma travellers in the UK through distinct different ethnicities. So I'm a Roman Gypsy. I descend from what you would know more commonly as European Roma. I refer to myself as a Gypsy because in the UK it has different connotations. So in Europe, the word Gypsy they, is negative because they associate it with Nazis. But in England and the rest of the UK, it comes from uh, 500 years ago and they thought we were Egyptians which merged into Egyptians, gypsies. So I'm quite proud to be a gypsy. If I'm in Europe, I identify as a Roma. I descend from the more, you know, the European Roma, which are now at their own in Europe, in England. And then there's Irish travellers, which are a different minority. They speak a different language, they have different DNA. They obviously descend from Ireland. Many of them are second, third generation and married into the gypsy traveller community. We are distinctly different, but there are so many similarities. And for the purposes of policy, the government lump us under the umbrella of GRT. There's a, a last census, 58,000 identified. There was only one category. This census, there's different categories for Roma, gypsy and travellers. So we're just hoping that more have identified. But we think that it was heavily undercounted because people won't identify because of reasons that we can remember today on the 27th of January, Roma genocide, Roma Holocaust. So therefore we think there's about a quarter of a million in the UK, Gypsy, Roma and travellers that are ethnic. So wow. it's complex, but the umbrella they give us is GRT. But yeah, that's um, that's pretty much the picture of us in the UK. 90% of us are housed or in settled accommodation. Um, there's still a very small minority, probably about a thousand caravans traveling around the UK which the policing bill has been designed for, but the effect of it will affect us all. And what what has been historically, or maybe even currently, the relationship like between Gypsy Roma, travelling folk, or the folk that you know and in, in your community, and the British community at large? Um, in the UK, we're a very forward-thinking country about things like hate crime and racism and oppression and making things e normal and equal. But for Gypsy Roma travellers in the UK, that doesn't really apply. It's the last acceptable form of racism. We suffer racism across all of the statutory services. There was some research produced yesterday, which was released yesterday by Birmingham University, um, that the Muslim community had done into how the wider UK public felt about them. 25% of the British public didn't want to be around Muslims or didn't like Muslims, but 44% didn't want to be anywhere near gypsy travellers, gypsy Roman travellers. So 
you know, and that's visual and felt in every single day in all of our outcomes. So we have the worst outcomes at every key stage level for education. We have 114 times our population in youth justice prisons, social services, education, health, employment, everything we fare worst. And that's how it comes out is, is acceptable racism and prejudice within, within, within society affects us. And is it a cultural genocide that's happening at the moment within the UK? Yeah, we, you know, that we don't have the white paper that says let's stamp them out. We don't have that, but we have um, history and we have knowledge and we have the effects. So just briefly, I won't touch on everything, but legislation after legislation and government after government have not supported us. There's probably only been one Labour government that was quite favourable to us over the last 50 years. Since the 1960s, there's been laws brought in to provide right provision, which has actually gone down by 10% in the last 10 years. Since the 1960s, there's been laws coming to provide provision and then there's been no provision. It's been made harder and harder and there's less and less spaces for you to live your life and your culture. So 90% of us, as I said, have been forced to assimilate. Um, if we look at social services, our children are taken at three times the rate of the wider community and they're never, very, very rarely, seldom, I don't know of any cases where they're returned to the family or the community even. So, you know, this is forced assimilation. We don't have the evidence, we don't have the proof, but so for example, in 2016, the government brought in a law to say that in order for us to be travellers, we needed to keep travelling. Even though we have ethnic status, we had to jump that hoop and keep travelling in the UK for eight to 12 weeks a year. Well, now they're going to make it impossible to travel. So how are we going to keep our status for planning purposes only? They just tie us up in knots. This is a community that's highly illiterate, uneducated, and usually doesn't attend key stage three or four education. So, you know, how, how are you expecting them to negotiate these laws? And and, and you've not no one could negotiate these laws. It's just it's false, it's false assimilation, it's eradication of our culture. Mm. And, and do you think they kind of the government at large kind of relies on the ignorance of the British public? I do, but I also think that the government we have in the UK at the moment uses minorities and things that works against works works for them and they've used us as a scapegoat because on their manifesto they put that they would um, make trespass illegal and so that helps to get them voted in and this image and stereotypes and negativity is projected by the media which predominantly in the UK is owned by four or five companies and is, you know, I know we're supposed to have a real media, but honestly, you know, a lot of it incites hatred against us, like the propaganda in the 1930s did for the Nuremberg laws. And some of these laws aren't that different. They're restricting us from traveling. They're going to remove children because children won't have anywhere to live. They're going to remove homes, criminalize families, you know, um, imprison if you can't pay the fines. It's hard to find employment if you are a gypsy. So, you know, it's like, They've created this narrative using propaganda and media and manifestos saying we're going to stamp out this gypsy problem. And then, you know, we're the ones that have to live with our everyday prejudice and hate. No one ever said to me before they called me a pikey or a gypo, do I live in a caravan? You know, no one ever cared. I, I'm a gypsy, whether I live in a trailer or not, you know. So, um, yeah, definitely. It's a narrative that the government create, the elected MPs create, 
They stand on their platforms all over the country, not just the government we have at the Mabon, but also the opposition. Um, and there's no apology given from, from the party groups because it buys votes. It buys votes to not want not want gypsies and travellers in your area. How can that be in this modern day and time in, in the United Kingdom, where we're supposed to have such unity, that it doesn't buy that it buys votes to stamp on a minority that's already severely oppressed? I, I just don't understand the narrative they've created. And what what is the biggest threat to the community at the moment? I think the biggest threat at the moment is is the um the prejudice around being a gypsy or traveller. So we have the highest rates of mental health suicide. It's shocking. It's prolific in our community, especially with our young people. And it's always really, really violent. So it's usually successful. I think the biggest threat is that, you know, as I've said, 95, 90% of us don't live in caravans, but this law coming in increases the threat over everything. So the biggest threat is how we're treated. It's the hate, it's the prejudice that creates the mental health. It's, it gets children out of education because of the what they what they receive at school. It's what you live in every day. If mm. you walk out of your front door every day and there's this accepted prejudice towards you and it's harder to get a job and you're called names at school and, and all of the evidence, all of the research evidence is this. So, you know, we know, for example, that 85% of children report physical bullying in school. We know... You know, as I was saying to you about prison numbers, and I'm throwing this data out so that it hits home. You know, the government admit that they inherently failed us for decades in 2019. Well, why keep failing us? <laughs> why exacerbate it? Why make it worse? So this legislation will affect a small minority of us on the road. Mm. But what it creates around every single one of us will carry forward for generations. And I think I think this will be the end of Gypsy Roam Travellers in the UK as they are nomadism in the UK. And that's our way of life. It's not just a box on wheels. You know, someone said to me this week, it's not just a box on wheels. It's our everything, it's our life, it's our home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you know, it's the way we live. Modern life in houses does not suit us, generational family living and, and traveling around. It doesn't suit everybody. Mm. And there was a huge campaign to kill the bill and this bill that went through um or went to parliament and and part of that there was other things kind of listed in this bill and we won't go into too much detail about that but is there a chance for gypsy travelers to to have part of this revoked and for it to not be passed or what how are you what do you know no we passed the stage for that about four weeks ago in the house of lords um some amendments were put forward by baroness whitaker who champions our communities all the time um, and they were voted even, I think it was 176, 176. So we won't get amendment. The amendment that went through after with section four of the bill, the civil trespass part, so there won't be any amendments to that now. But the other parts of the bill around protesting mean that we will be, ho- ho- the fact that they've challenged them and there are amendments to them, they will go back to the House of Parliament now and allegedly come out in a separate bill but what that means is we'll be able to continue to use protest in some format to continue to challenge what they've done to us isn't this is day one for us when the bill goes through we've always been clear about that since drive to survive formed um that that was a prelude and when the bill goes through then we can use all of the other amendments that we fought so hard for alongside everybody else we kill the bill and we can use that to protest what they're doing to us so just hopefully it gives us more strength and can you just tell us a little bit about the Drive to Survive? 
Yeah, so Drive to Survive in the UK, there's a lot of uh, organisations that are run by, for and with Gypsies and Travellers, most of them for. And so in May, a lot of them aren't political because of the charity reasons. And I understand that completely. You know, you're using charitable money, you can't be really political. But when this bill came around last year, we needed to be political as a community. And we needed to get more vocal. And traditionally, because Gypsy Roma travellers don't want to put their head above the parapet, as I said earlier, so it's within living memory we were killed for that. Then what we decided to do, some community members, myself, Jake Bowers, uh, Phil Regan, and some, some other people online, we decided that we were so angry with this bill on May the 16th last year, which is Genocide Remembrance Day for Roma, that we would come together and form some sort of organisation and make a demonstration. So we did. So um, we formed in May and by July, we'd crowdfunded enough money to hold an event in London. On the 7th of July, we held the Gypsy Roma Traveller Drive to Survive rally. And we had um, fabulous speakers, Shami Chakrabata, Zara Sultana, you know, all from the community, Billy Welsh, Thomas McCarthy singing. We had some absolutely Traveller Pride, some absolutely fantastic representatives. There was about 3,000 people there. That's the biggest, other than the fairs, that's the biggest you know, time I've seen my community coming back with activists. So that was powerful. And then from there, we built an organisation which is all community-led, ethnic on uh, board members. And we've been able to go out and do various things. So we went to Appleby Fair. We took Appleby's Got Talent there, which is 30,000 visitors, probably 10,000 Gypsy Roman travellers. We held Appleby's Got Talent while the community were up there singing in between. The crew and I were getting up and we were saying, look, you know, this policing bill is going to affect us because you're not only working against what the government are bringing in, you're also working with a community that isn't really that politicised, disengaged with it because mm. none of the parties are really that supportive of Gypsy Roma travellers. So it's about politicising them and making them see that their vote has got a point and a purpose and, and that gives us value to the parties because... You know, we need to, the next party that comes in in the UK need to repeal Section 4 of this bill, and that's what we'll be working for. Mm. So, um, yeah, and then we went on to Manchester as Drive to Survive, and we led the People's Assembly March with horses. So this is all great to show the government that we're not going away, to show our value and to show our solidarity. We don't stand alone. We stand with everybody else now. We realise that. So, yeah, as I said, when the bill goes through, that's day one, and that's when our strategy will really start. COVID's been a blessing for us as well, um, in a way, because we, as a community, are so spread out across the UK. I mean, it seems silly because you're in Australia and it's massive and we're a tiny, but we're so spread out and so disenfranchised, especially after COVID, that mm. actually COVID gave us the ability as Drive to Survive to work online, to be able to use websites, to be able to bring our tools and skills. And actually, you know, there's some of us that are, are good at doing something some of us that are good in the internet and some of us are good at creating digital posters and it enabled us to have online meetings and to do something where we didn't need an office we didn't need wages we didn't need any of that um, and so we hope now we can grow and become a more of a voice for the community because having a board that all ethnic gypsy roman travelers in the uk that are all as much as we are community and immersed in the community we all have different skills in media or journalism or um, charities or you know speaking or whatever so and all that's recognized so we now have a voice across the UK collectively which we didn't have before. And how can the community the Gypsy Roma and Traveller community in Australia but also at large like all of us in Australia if we want to get behind you how can we do that? 
You can go to drivetosurvive.org.uk. You will find on there digital posters that you could download, share across social media, put, print them off, put them in your window. Um, you know, support, show your visibility because for everybody who sees that poster or sees your tweet, 10 might see it, but one might want to know about us. And the problem is out there is not that people hate us, it's ignorance. Nothing's taught about us or about our needs or actually the fact that one square mile would cover all of the caravans out on the road in the UK at the moment. It's such a small point and they're using it as a voting point. So I would say go to the website, download the digital posters, follow us on social media. We do a lot of events. We hold an online meeting every other Monday, which is like a chat room if you want to support. We're not just in the UK. We've got representation now in Spain, um, Germany. You know, if you want to support us in Australia, we'd be grateful for the support. You can use the toolkit on our website to contact RMPs. Please go for Pretty Patel if you're in a different country or Boris or someone powerful. And also there is toolkit on there. Um, uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of resources on there, different blogs and videos. By all means, read them. If you get offered a space to speak at any events about this, then please, you know, download one of our blogs and read it out. You know, those are all there as resources for everybody who wants to support us. We're completely crowdfunded and voluntary at this stage. So everything that's been put on there has been created by a key member because they wanted to put their contribution in. So by all means, use it. That's what it's there for. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sherry. Before we go, is there anything that we haven't touched on, anything that you want to say? Yeah, I just want to touch on one other thing. Yeah, sure. Is, um, this law they're bringing in is, is not reasonable for the reasons I've stated because there's so few of us it would actually affect. It's just the propaganda around it which creates the narrative. But also an organisation... We have friends, families and travellers. They surveyed the police across the country, Freedom of Information Act, and 84% of the police do not even want this legislation and local authorities don't want this legislation either. So who is this for? Who is it for? Because we know that the police don't want it, the local authorities don't want it. 65% of them said that the site provision's a problem. So actually what the government needs to do here is address the, the severe shortage of sites where there's a 10, 20, 30 year wait in London for sites. Um, address that, give some planning permission to people that have got their own land. We know 95% of gypsy or travellers that apply for planning permission on their own land turned down because of their ethnic status so you know what what are we meant to do here what are you can do push us off into an island you know the police don't want it the councils don't want it there's nowhere for us to go what are you doing here you're creating hate against people that can't challenge it we can't do anything about it mm. there's no answer and that was my interview with Sherry Smith, Roma woman from the Drive to Survive UK-based activist group fighting against the forced assimilation and cultural genocide of Roma gypsy and traveller folk in the UK. To support the group, you can head to drivetosurvive.org.uk and that's Drive to Survive with a number two. Um, so Drive to Survive and you can find them on Twitter at drive to survive 3 So please do follow them. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. 
There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to 3CR and as you just heard, this week is Subscriber Drive. So it's that time where we ask you to show your support for your local community radio station. Um, and yeah, here at 3CR, we do cover a lot of things you don't hear on other stations, protests, uh, local community events. Um, so if you want to keep going, show your support, um, then yeah, please give us a call on 94198377 or renew your subscription online at 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. And it is so important with an election coming up to get more in-depth and across a whole lot of issues that aren't very well covered in mainstream media. And we have such a narrow media spectrum, you know, so much owned by the Murdoch media. So Absolutely. the more yep. voices, the better. Yeah, it's the, um, yeah, as you said, the range of issues that you don't see anywhere else and also the people telling these stories that we, um, yeah, there's a real focus on first-hand experience here at 3CR, which, yeah, is often not the way... And uh, speaking of local community events, I just wanted to give a quick mention to an event we have been following on breakfast all this week. Um, So it's happening at the Collingwood Community Gardens. So regular 3CR listeners will be familiar with the fight to save these gardens from demolition on the Collingwood Children's Farm. Uh, So we've been following the future of Collingwood Children's Farm Community Gardens with close interest. And um, sadly, this week, the community gardens are set to be demolished by the management of Collingwood Children's Farm. Um, The gardens have a proud reputation of being home to plots of low income and um, elderly residents. And now they're set to be bulldozed and completely destroyed. And they're going to lose their original purpose as a real grassroots community garden. So unfortunately, we're not able to cross to them this morning, um, but you can stay tuned. So 3CR Breakfast spoke to them on Monday and Tuesday, so have a listen back to that. And we'll be covering the event throughout this week, so tune in tomorrow and Friday. Um, and if you want to listen to any of the old audio, just hop on to 3cr.org.au slash breakfast. Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 9419 3CR ensures that our voices Aboriginal voices are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. (laughs) 
for being here I mean Matthew Ella we spent Thursday together in Parliament watching this unfold live this um, decriminalization of sex work bill Matthew could you just give us a little bit of background to the bill how long have you been involved in it what was it for I mean it's 45 years in the making of course it's not an easy feat to try and sum that up Um, but yeah can you tell us a little bit about it right The idea of decriminalising sex work first emerged in the late 1970s in Victoria and Cheryl Overs and a group of activists at the time formed a working group and that eventually became the Prostitutes Collective of Victoria and that was a a group that ran in the 80s and 90s. I came into the picture as an activist in 2015 where I started volunteering at a sex worker organisation called RED and the not-for-profit that I'm a part of called Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. That formed in 2017. And the bill itself, that is the actual wording of the law that was being debated, I estimate that that really became started development in mid-October 2020 after Fiona Patton handed the government her final report with recommendations on how the bill ought to look like. Wow. So there's definitely been a lot of work that's gone into this, but because we're so lucky to have you on the show and that we were there with you, I just hope we could have a little chat about what Thursday looked like. I mean, how did you feel? Um, Were you nervous in the morning? Well, it was really exciting to, to be there on the day with you and a a large group of other supporters. So that was really exciting. I was very excited and equally very tired because (laughs) I'd been up since four and the week before had been a whirlwind week. So extremely, extremely um, tired is how I would say it when I was feeling. On the day, it was, I remember getting up at 4 a.m., getting to Parliament at 7.30. I was there with you, Alice, for the press conference at uh, 8 a.m. I remember the press conference was very interesting to watch. I mean, was that the first time that you had spoken out to the media as well? Yes, it was the first time that that I'd spoken in the media and it was a new experience. It was a fascinating experience to see them all gathered there. Fiona, obviously, Fiona Patton knew what she was doing. 
So she stood up and we kind of, I think both of us were just in awe and watching and learning how the whole thing works. Mm. So that was fascinating. It was a short, short affair, but um, that was, you know, really, really good. And then it was off to the uh, electorate office at the back of the parliament where we left our bags. And every time that we moved anywhere, we had to be escorted by a minder, including if we had to go to the toilet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Just yes. being escorted around parliament all the time. It felt like we were on a school trip and that we were like little kids let loose in parliament and they were just like, no, 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 this way, children, come here. Um, yeah, very so much so. I had that uh, feeling it was a very large group to be escorting to the toilet back and forth. So it had a very, uh, yeah, school excursion feel, but the same kind of yeah. excitement as well, I think, for the day. For sure. And Matthew, can you tell us a bit about, from your, well, from your opinion, really, what were the highlights of the day and then maybe some of the lowlights? Or, and when I say highlights and lowlights, I mean, throughout that debate on Thursday, what were some pleasant surprises? So for me, the highlights were the surprises because I had spent months leading up to this sort of planning on what to expect, looking at the numbers, talking to people about who was going to say what. And there were some surprises. So for me, that was the best part was those surprises. Who ended up sort of speaking in favour that we weren't expecting to? Who was worse than we thought they would be? Who ended up voting yes when we thought they were going to vote no? So there were some surprises. Yeah. Can you reveal maybe just like your top surprise? Who, Which kind of member of parliament really shocked you with their vote? The person who shocked me with, with their vote was Jeff Borman the Shooters, Farmers, Fishers Party crossbencher. Mm. He, uh, the name of his party suggests that he might not be on board with sex work and he ended up voting for the bill in the end. We didn't really expect that until the very end. Like he, he did it, I think he did a speech that wasn't a great speech, but then in the end he, he voted yes. So I would welcome all the support that we can get for mm-hmm. whoever for whatever reasons and for some reason he he voted yes so that was a surprise also um the other person the um justice party uh member and darren hints justice party his name's just lost my mind for a second he's a former police officer mm-hmm. and he's very focused on law and order and justice for victims of crime and he made a lot of speeches where he was very critical of the bill and then when it came to vote, he voted yes. So yeah, I think he um, got the most scoffs from us up at the on the back row um, during his speech. Um, had some of the yeah worst lines of the day, I think. Um, but on the whole, well, I was yeah. pleasantly surprised. <laughs> yeah, so then he then he came because he sought amendments to the bill, and the, and the amendments didn't didn't pass. And um, just trying trying to think of his name. So that was another surprise. There, there was some. There was a new Labor member who relatively new to the parliament who gave a really powerful speech about living in St Kilda growing up her father and her childhood values that were instilled in her that were about respecting everybody whether they're a sex worker or not and that's what said she said made her feel the most proud this was one of the proudest moments of her life to be voting yes for this bill because it closely aligned with the values that she was raised with Yeah, it was interesting to see in Parliament who like tied themselves quite closely to the bill for, for freedom and human rights 
and who brought their moral stance to the table and just kind of spout a load of rubbish about um, really stereotypes and what they thought they knew about the industry. How did you feel about that, Matthew? Well, whenever people say those things, the, what, what was going through in my mind was, is this person's ignorant? And we know there's a lot of ignorance in society when it comes to sex work, particularly about public health and STIs. Is it ignorance or do they actually know better and they're just choosing to say this for their own agenda or because their party wants them to? So I, I, you can never be sure in politics. You know, we all know some, sometimes politicians lie. Mm. But, I mean, you don't really know what their real intention is. I have to say my biggest disappointment was actually Dr. Catherine Cumming, the, the independent crossbencher. And the reason why I say disappointment is disappointment is when you're expecting something higher and what you get is something a lot lower. Mm-hmm. I was expecting a lot more from her and her speech, not just her speech, but her uh, lengthy speeches in the committee stage were all about public health and STIs and not trusting sex workers and the threat of spread of disease. She went into a lot of detail about that. And she also said, I think she said it two or three times, I am a big fan of the Sex Work Act, the current laws. Remember yeah. she, said, she said the word big fan, like, like it yeah. was a music um, band or something, you know? Yeah, it was really odd. And then she continued to to talk about things that she had no idea and no true understanding about. She, As you said, she mentioned a lot about public health, um, despite... And, and gave and gave sex workers no credit for taking their own pub, their own health seriously. This the public that what's so ironic is the public health issue is probably the best understood researched issue when it comes to sex workers, particularly with HIV, globally and in Australia. And and we have the most evidence about how to how to handle the issue. And we know that criminalisation of public health measures in relation to sex workers do not work. We know that. And Australia is a living example of that because we avoided that approach in the 80s of HIV, AIDS crisis. And we now have the results to prove it where Australia is on the verge of eliminating HIV completely. So Australia is a, is a living example of how you can do other things like peer education and empowerment that can help to reduce the spread of, of STIs. Mm-hmm. And so it was a historic day, the third jurisdiction in the world to have introduced this, I believe, and the decriminalisation of sex work. Can you tell us what is next? What happens now? Yes. So we're the third jurisdiction in Australia, but the fourth jurisdiction in the world. Thank you for the correction, Matthew. New Zealand in 2003. I wouldn't let you exclude New Zealand in that way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Credit to um, Dame Catherine Healy at New Zealand who was leading the campaign there. So what happens next is we have we have two what's called enactment dates. They are dates when the bill will actually apply on the ground. And the first half of the bill will apply on the 10th of May of this year. And the second half or other parts of the bill will apply on the 1st of December 2023 which I might note is after the state election, and that's significant. 
So, so those are two dates when sex workers have to wait until the benefits flow onto the ground. But what we also have um, to do, Alice and Ella, is we have to look at implementation and details of surrounding adjacent laws. So yes, this bill removes criminal laws, but we still need to look at amending advertising regulations, public health laws and regulations, uh, council laws, that's a nightmare, that one, and um, the details of the street-based sex work regulations have also recently been unveiled. And there's another issue for brothel owners, and that is how do we wind back the brothel licensing fee structure and actually rejig the money and the fee um, transfer process there? So all of this sounds awfully boring, but it's quite complicated and it will take time. And the state government announced these changes just a couple of days ago, some of these other details. The one detail they haven't announced yet is the public health one, because I think they're gonna take a little bit longer to get that one right, given how fierce the debate was in the parliament with people um, almost it panicking. Was. Yeah, almost it, was panicking. A, it, was a, it was like a mass panic, wasn't it? Um, that suddenly STIs would just flood through Victoria, which was bizarre to listen to. It, it was, and uh, it's, as I said, most sex, to be, to be honest with you, most sex workers didn't even know what the criminal police laws required. Police weren't even aware of what was going on because how do you know what consenting adults are doing in a bedroom? How do, how do you even know what's going on there, right? Sex workers were looking after their health because they have an incentive to do so because if they get an STI, not only is it bad for their health, but they lose money. They can't work. So, and, and you know, so there's so many incentives uh, for sex workers to be extra careful with their health. They 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 have a strong reason to be to be careful on that front. Absolutely. And if our listeners want to keep up to date with what you're working on now, past the um, past Thursday's bill, but all the stuff that you just mentioned, where can they find you? How can they how can they um, keep up to date? So we're active on Twitter. Uh, there was a live tweet of the debate in Parliament at SWLRV is the Twitter handle there. And the website is sexworklawreformvictoria.org.au. Wonderful. And I would stress to um, any listeners to just go back onto Twitter and read through that live tweet of Thursday's debate because um, Matthew was fiercely typing away all day and there's so much information on there as well as the website where um, Matthew and the team have debunked lots of different misunderstandings about the industry so yeah thank you for all those resources they've been very helpful for me over the years. Well thank you for reading them and thank you for having me on the show as well. No problem thank you so much Matthew. Thanks Matthew. Okay. Hey bye-bye. And that was Matthew Roberts from Sex Work Law Reform speaking to us about the Sex Work Decriminalisation Bill, which was debated and passed the Upper House in Parliament last week. And I think that's just about our show for this morning, right, Judith? <laughs> yes, it is. And it's been fabulous to be here and great stories. I've enjoyed them all. Has the uh, live studio experience been everything you'd hoped for? <laughs> Look, it's so familiar being in here and I love the new colour. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, had a bit of a makeover, new colour, yes, a new air filtration a... system, things have changed around here. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful, very soothing walls, that deep kind of, I don't know, dark kind of blue-green kind of, yeah, ocean-like. Absolutely. All right, on that note, we're going to leave you with uh, Stick Together, and we'll see you next Wednesday. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.